Amen, amen. You may be seated this morning. On Sunday mornings at Calvary Chapel, we're doing a verse-by-verse study in John's Gospel. So we're in chapter 7. If you'll turn in your Bibles to chapter 7 of John's Gospel, we're going to cover verses 1 through 39 this morning. If you need a Bible to study the Word of God with us and read it with us, just raise your hand. Pastor John will slip you a Bible. If you're towards the front, there's a few that are up here on the front platform. Chapter 7 of John's Gospel, and we'll start at verse 1. We'll cover the first 39 verses of John chapter 7. Now, if you've been with us in our study of John's Gospel, we spent three weeks in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is the longest chapter in John's Gospel. And the chapter starts out, just gives a, a brief Uh, overview of Jesus' uh, ministry up in the Galilee region. Remember that John is very selective in the events and miracles that he is writing about that Jesus performed. And he only spends one chapter really talking about Jesus' ministry up in the Galilee region, even though Jesus uh, spent most of his time up in that region, most of his ministry up there. And the chapter starts out by telling us that the crowds were very great, and that Jesus had performed that familiar uh, miracle that is recorded in all of the gospel narratives, and that was the feeding of the 5,000 on that hillside there in Galilee. And it was at that time, Jesus at uh, the peak of his popularity, that people were wanting to crown him as king, but Jesus dismissed the crowds. And you might be thinking, well, isn't that what he wanted? He wanted them to come and receive him as their king, but they were coming for the wrong motives and the wrong reasons. They were coming just because they wanted a a material king, a political king. And Jesus wanted them to come. He knew their hearts for them to give their hearts to him. And Jesus was making that proclamation that he is the true bread of life that came down from heaven. And whoever believes in me um, shall never hunger and thirst again. And he knew that the crowds were only seeking him after that feeding of the 5,000 because I fed you with bread, you're hungry again, your stomachs are growling, and you need to turn to the heavenly bread for everlasting life. You need to eat of me and drink of me. And as they heard that, it offended them. And they began to leave him. And that's what we saw at the end of the chapter is Jesus turned then to his disciples and he would say to them, Do you want to go with them as well? Do you want to to go away also? And Peter said something very, very profound. He said, where would we go? For you're the one that has the words of eternal life. And this is my prayer this morning and my hope for all of us that are here uh, listening to God's word and as we study God's word that we would never take for granted what we do here when we gather, and that is we take in the words of eternal life. And so they would walk away, but Jesus, as we open up the chapter, is still going to walk among them. And so, Father, we ask this morning that you would bless this time in the study of your word. We pray that you would just, uh, as we see in our text, that people were debating about Jesus. And maybe perhaps there are some here that are debating about Jesus, that are listening to this message. And I pray that it would be very clear that they would see that he is the one that is the bread of life that he is the one that as we come to, we come to for everlasting life, believing in him and what he did for us and going to the cross, laying down his life, uh, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sin and rising from the grave. 
And Lord, my prayer is this, is that uh, we would see that uh, as we uh, come to you, that truly that you are the one who's provided that forgiveness and eternal life. And Lord, that we come, even if we are ones that believe in you, that are hungry and thirsty, that you're the one that will cause us to be satisfied and fulfilled in our hearts and in our souls. So bless this Bible study, Lord, as we look at the words of eternal life. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So chapter 7, verse 1, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him there. So chapter 6, in the feeding of the 5,000, and he then makes this declaration of being the bread of life, we know that in verse 4 it tells us that it took place near Passover. So Passover is one of the major feasts that they would celebrate in the springtime. So it would be about April. And we see that chapter 7 here takes place at the Feast of Tabernacle, which is later on in the fall, in late September or, or October. So after six months, even though the people walked with him no more, the crowds are getting smaller, he still walked among them. He was available to them in case there was a change of heart. He was still ministering. God is so patient, isn't he? And he is so, his love, long-suffering. And I'm so glad that the Lord, you know, didn't write me off. Uh, but the Lord was one that continued to just draw me to himself and, and continue to minister uh, to me and, 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 and not give up on me. And I know that you have that same testimony as well. But he didn't want to go to Judea at this time because you recall in chapter 5, you might remember that Jesus had healed that man at the pool of Bethesda there in Jerusalem, and that healing took place on the Sabbath day. And that man that could not walk, had that physical infirmity for 38 years, Jesus told him to take up your bed and to walk, and he did. And when the religious leaders saw that, they said, what is this? You're carrying your bed. Who told you that you can do that? And they didn't care that this man who had been, you know, uh, had been afflicted for so many years was, was healed, and there was joy, and there uh, was, you know, this uh, miracle that had taken place. They only cared about their traditions and their rules and regulations. You can't do that. You can't carry your bed. Who told you to do that? And as they found out that Jesus was the one that did that healing, it was the religious leaders that were determined to put Jesus to death, as we read that in chapter 5. But as they were coming to Jesus and asking him, by what authority do you do these things? We know that Jesus would say to them that as my father works, I work. I do no work apart from my father. And in that, we see that Jesus, they knew, was claiming to be equal with God. And they were even more determined at that time that they were going to plot and plan to make sure that Jesus would be put to death. So here is Jesus. He is, um, didn't come at this time, so he walked in Galilee. In verse 2, now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And as I mentioned, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the three major feasts that, uh, and celebrations in the Jewish calendar taking place in the fall of the year. And the Feast of Tabernacles, what the people would do is come to Jerusalem. It was also called the Feast of Booths. And it was like a big camp out for eight days. Uh, they would live in these little tents, these lean-tos, these 
these little booths, and they would sleep under the stars. And it was the fathers that would tell their children the story about how their forefathers came through the wilderness for 40 years. It commemorated how God provided for them manna from heaven the, and also water that came from the rock and the pillar of fire. They would tell that story to their children that led them, you know, uh, in the wilderness, the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. And so that's what it was. It was, it was a very festive time. It, it was a, a time where the people came to celebrate and commemorate God's faithfulness to them. Now, as we open up chapter 7, Jesus is only about six months from going to the cross. So chapter 7 to the end of John's gospel, we see here that it's the last months of Jesus' ministry before his death and burial and his resurrection. And it's in the fall, October, so it's the next spring, next April, that uh, Passover, that he is going to be the one uh, that is going to be the Passover lamb that will die for our sins. We continue in chapter 7. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Interesting. So the brothers of Jesus, more or more accurately, the half-brothers of Jesus. Jesus, of course, being born of a virgin. But Mary and Joseph would have other children. And here are the brothers of Jesus, the half-brothers, that didn't believe in him, and they're being very skeptical of him. You see, the other Gospels also support the fact that they, uh, Jesus' family, weren't very supportive of his ministry before his death and his resurrection. And in verse 4 here, it isn't them saying, hey, you should go to Jerusalem and really show them who you are. You need to do some miracles down there. Uh, they're saying this to him very sarcastically. They know that the crowds be, have begun to leave, that the crowds are getting smaller. And so what they're saying, in a way of scoffing him, they're saying, hey, if you want to get your following back, then why don't you do something spectacular in Jerusalem? Uh, do it in front of everybody. Do it at the feast. The Living Bible presents the context of what is being said well here. It reads that they did scoff him. Go uh, to where the people are and, and where they can see your miracles. There you can be famous, and, and you can't appear in the Galilee if you hide like this. So they were very, very skeptical of him. Now we know that Jesus, he's going to do the will of the Father. He does no works apart from the Father. And he is going to do that which pleases his Father in his work. You see, the world's cel celebrities, their success depends on the applause of the crowds. And Jesus wasn't that way. The crowds were walking away because they weren't coming to him and giving their hearts to him. Now, eventually, we know that two of Jesus' brothers would end up believing. We know that because one of them was James. James, as you read in the book of Acts, 
He was an early church leader. He was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So we read about him in the book of Acts. And also, he would write that epistle that we have in the New Testament, the book of James, uh, also known as the, the epistle of practical Christianity. And then you have Jude, that little epistle that is in the very back of your Bible, right before the book of, of Revelation. These guys were half-brothers of Jesus, and they would come to believe after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here's something kind of interesting to think about. Can you imagine being raised in the same home as Jesus? I mean, that, that would be pretty amazing. Having a sibling, having a brother that was absolutely perfect, I mean, he never punched you, you know, in the stomach. He didn't steal your toys away from you. He didn't take any cookies dishonestly from the cookie jar. He never lied any of those things. And I can just imagine perhaps it was Mary that would say to, you know, her other children, you need to be more like your older brother, like Jesus, and, uh, which is true. <laughs> we all do, don't we? But that would be quite interesting to be, you know, raised in a family where Jesus didn't have any sin. And they would eventually, as I mentioned, uh, that we know, that they would come to believe, and it wasn't until after his death on Calvary's cross and his resurrection. And the reason that I point that out is because people can think that Jesus, well, he was a great religious leader. He was a good teacher. He was some spiritual leader of some sort. But they won't believe until we clearly tell them who he is, the Son of God, and what he did. And that is he went to the cross for you to die for your sins. That he is the one that lived a perfect life. And he died for you, the only one that could die for you. And was worthy enough to die for you. And then he rose from the grave and conquered sin and death that they might come to believe as well. Well, we continue in verse 6. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, and its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. So they, they wanted to kill him in Jerusalem again, as we know from chapter 5, and after he did that healing there in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And his time had not come for that to happen. We see that Jesus oftentimes would say, my time has not come, my hour has not come. And then we're going to see later on in chapter 17, on the night that he's going to be arrested, and then the next day taken to Calvary, uh, we know that he would pray to the Father that, Father, the hour has now come. But right now, six months prior to that, he says, you guys, go ahead. Uh, your time is always ready because you're not submitted to the Father. Now, we talk about God's will, don't we, oftentimes, and we want to be in God's will. And we discussed this in the book of Esther, and we'll continue to see this very clearly, that God's will includes not only just being yielded to his purposes and, and what his plan is for us, what he wants to do through us, but also his timing. So here we know that uh, his hour had not yet come. And you see, the Lord has his purposes that he wants to work through you and me and it is also in his perfect timing so lord I, I want to be where you want me to be i want to be used for your purposes but i don't want to get ahead of you i don't want to lag behind you 
but I want to be just where you want me to be. And Jesus knows that his hour has not yet come. That'll come later. But verse 10, when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. And then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others say no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. In verse 13 we read, However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So Jesus told his brothers, you know, I'm not going to the feast right now. Not at this, this moment, not publicly like you want me to and try to do something spectacular to get my following back. But he would go later. Um, and he went, as it says here, that uh, not openly, but as it were in secret. Now, don't think that he went with the disguise on or, you know, he's in camouflage and all of this. But it simply is telling us he went quietly. Initially, he goes quietly to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was all abuzz about, you know, Jesus. And people are, are debating about him as we're going to continue to see as we read on in the chapter. Some are saying that he's good. Others are saying that he deceives. But notice that there was this whispering, really, that was going on. They, they were kind of being quiet about it because the people feared the religious leaders. And the reason that they feared the religious leaders is because the religious leaders were powerful in the land. They, they could excommunicate you uh, if they wanted to. And if you were excommunicated uh, by the religious leaders, you were an outcast. People wouldn't talk to you. It would be hard to get a job. Um, you were uh, uh, an outcast in, in that nation. It wasn't like you could go down to another church. If you were excommunicated from the synagogue, excommunicated to where you, go, you could not go to the feast here. You, you couldn't go to uh, the temple to sacrifice. So that was a very scary thing for the people. So they're kind of whispering this right now for fear of the religious leaders. In verse 14, uh, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to, into the temple and taught. And, and the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters having never studied? You remember that we saw the first time that Jesus went to the temple in John's gospel? He went there in chapter 2 at Passover, and he would uh, cleanse the temple. He would drive out the, uh, those who were selling the sacrifices. He overturned the money changers' tables. He went up to Jerusalem the first time to cleanse the temple. Now, as we read here in chapter 7, he is teaching at the temple. And I think that is very much worth our considering here this morning because before the Lord can really impart His Word effectively to you and to me, listen, it's real important that there first needs to be a cleansing in my heart. There are certain things perhaps that in my life and in my heart that are going on that need to be driven out, that need to be overturned, that need to be chased away. And that is why when we study the Word of God, whether it's here corporately or in your devotions daily, and my prayer is, listen, is that you are having devotions. If you want to grow in the Lord, if you want to mature in the Lord, a real key is this, that you constantly, that you're consistently, 
that you're daily, if possible, that you're having devotions, that you're getting up and you're reading the Word of God and you're just spending some time with the Lord, and you're going to see that your Christianity is really going to be alive. But as we do that, whether we're gathering here on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or in your morning devotions or evening devotions, I pray that as we go to the Lord, that we would really be open to Him, that, Lord, search my heart and chase out those things, drive out those things that need to be. That's what David would pray. He said, Lord, search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. Is there anything that needs to be confessed? Anything that needs to be repented of? Are there attitudes that you've had that, Lord, I know that you're dealing with me? Let there be a cleansing in our hearts and then there can be true teaching that can come to our hearts. You see, as Christians, we can be a little bit lazy about the importance of asking the Lord to really search our hearts and allow Him to expose those things that really need to be driven out, those things that perhaps hinder us uh, from really hearing and receiving His Word to us. And, and that can be true. So before there is that teaching to touch our hearts, we need to ask the Lord to cleanse our hearts. And so the Jewish leaders marveled at Jesus' teaching. They were amazed that he had such understanding and knowledge of the Scriptures. And they knew that Jesus was teaching with real authority. He had not been at any of their formal schools of learning. Now, it's believed that there were several schools, seminaries, if you would, uh, that were in and around Jerusalem at this time. And Jesus had a degree from none of them. The religious leaders, they knew this. And, and they're saying, hey, he, he never went to any of our s schools. How can he teach with such insight? How can he teach with such profoundness? How can this be? Do you realize that they said the same thing about the apostles shortly after the ascension of Jesus in the book of Acts, that Acts chapter 2, that the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and Peter would stand up, he would give an explanation, and he said, this is that which is spoken of the prophet Joel, and he would preach the gospel, he would, he would quote from Joel, he would quote from the book of Psalms, 3,000 got saved that day, and then in the next chapter, when it was Peter and John, that would heal that man there at the beautiful gate, the same thing. He, Peter would stand up, he would give, you know, the, this preaching, 2,000 more got saved. So all of a sudden, Christianity is exploding in Jerusalem, and the gospel's going out. And the Sanhedrin council, the religious council, would arrest the apostles. And the apostles are standing before the high priest and the religious council, and they're very upset. They said, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. That is with, with the gospel. And they would look at Peter and John and their boldness, and it tells us there in Acts chapter 4 that they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. I mean, most of those apostles were from up north in the Galilee region. They were fishermen, and, and, and they were ones that didn't go to the high, you know, educated, highly esteemed schools of training there in Jerusalem. So they knew that. Hey, these guys, they're uneducated, they're untrained men, but it was the religious council that it says that they marveled at the apostles. The same word that is used here in chapter 7 as they're marveling at Jesus. But they marveled at those apostles and they realized that they had been with Jesus. You know, we have that saying, it's not, you know, what you know, it's who you know. Do you realize it's the same thing with you and I as Christians? 
It's who we know. It's not just what we know, it's who we know. And Paul, at the end of his life, would write to Timothy that, Timothy, I know whom I have believed. He didn't say, I know what I have believed. Now, Paul knew a lot. Doctrine was a very important truth. Of course it is. But he writes, I know whom I have believed. And if you have been hanging out with Jesus and spending time with him, spending time in his word, as you spend time in your devotions, as you spend time knowing him and coming him as we open up the word of God, even if you are considered unlearned and perhaps untrained as far as the world's scholastic system goes, people are going to marvel at you and they're going to wonder, where did you get that truth? Where did you get such wisdom? Where did you get that insight, that boldness? And you can say, well, I've been spending time with Jesus. They marveled at Jesus here in chapter 7. They marveled at his followers in Acts chapter 4. And people will marvel at you as you continue to learn of him. In verse 16, Jesus answered him and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. And he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus said, I'm not coming with my own doctrine, trying to receive glory only to me, but I seek the glory of the Father who sent me, and you should know that it is from God. Now, as we teach God's truth, only God is to get the glory. No teacher, listen, of God's word can take any credit from that which only comes from God. And these religious leaders claiming to be experts of the Old Testament, the scriptures, and they're listening to Jesus and being rooted in the scripture, they should have known that it was from God. You and I should be able to discern if someone is false or someone is true. And how do we discern that? How is it as John would write in his epistle uh, that how do you test the spirits? Well, we test it through the Word of God. And that's why it's important that we're grounded and rooted in the Word of God. In verse 19, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So the, here are the religious establishment of the land. Uh, they were so proud that they were keepers of the law. They boasted in that. And Jesus says, you don't. Because it isn't just the outward action, but it is the attitude of the heart. Moses gave you the law, but you're not applying it. Why is it that you seek to kill me? And they sought to kill him, as we just talked about, because he, they said he broke the Sabbath. The religious leaders, particularly the Pharisees, who were determined to keep the most minute details of the law, many of them believed that if Israel kept the Sabbath perfectly, then the Messiah would come, and he would bless the nation. And so that's why they were so into the Sabbath. And here is this man healed at the pool of Bethesda carrying his bed. Who told you to do that? You can't do that. And here they are determined to put Jesus to death because he was accused of not keeping the Sabbath. And so they are wanting to do this. Now, the crowd doesn't know this. Um, and if you were to ask the religious leaders or the people, hey, are you trying to kill Jesus? They would have denied it. 
but they're plotting, they're planning, they have been. In verse 20, the people answered and said, You have a demon, who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marveled. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? In verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, as you study the book of Genesis, as many of you know, the covenant of circumcision, given in chapter 17, it was given to Abraham and his descendants. And that covenant was that there was to be circumcision of that male child that was born after eight days. And if on the eighth day after that child was born, that male, um, that it fell on the Sabbath, that circumcision was still to take place. So it was a, a covenant relationship with God. It was a cutting away of the flesh. It was to be an outward mark of what was to be an inward belief of the Lord. So why is Jesus all of a sudden, he's talking about circumcision here. He's making a very important point. You don't get angry and upset when there is this work, when there's a cutting away, when there is this, this work done on the Sabbath, when there is this cry of pain and anguish that has taken place on the Sabbath day. Why are you getting all upset, you religious leaders, and angry at me when I've added to a man and when I've healed a man on the Sabbath and a man that had been crying in pain and anguish for 38 years, now on the Sabbath, there's a cry of joy. Why are you upset with that? If you're going to judge me, then do it right with a righteous judgment. But they didn't do that. If they had, they would have embraced Jesus instead of hating him and plotting to want to kill him. And they were only concerned about their religious traditions and rules, and they lived by, you know, and tried to get everybody else to live by, and it even got to a point where it was taking joy away from the people. It was taking them away from the Lord. It was a burden to the people. The religious leaders, their hearts were towards the law and the rules of the law. Their hearts were towards their interpretations of law, but it really wasn't towards God. And they had made the law of God of no effect. They didn't come to the one who fulfilled the law, that is Jesus. So those who are legalists and religious, so concerned about outward appearance, not having a heart for God, and that's why Jeremiah would say to the people, there needs to be a circumcision of heart that needs to take place. That is, there needs to be that cutting away of those things. And there needs to be a heart for the Lord. There needs a love and desire to know Him and a devotion to Him. In verse 25, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not He whom they seek to kill? But look, He speaks boldly and they say nothing to Him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know that where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. So again, as the debate about Jesus continues, some of the people are saying, yeah, uh, there's talk that this Jesus of, of Nazareth, that he's the Christ. Uh, they're taking parts of the Old Testament 
Uh, their understanding of the Old Testament isn't real clear right now concerning Messiah. Uh, Messiah, which means, uh, you know, the Christ, which means the anointed one, would come suddenly, unexpectedly. They had read those verses, and here they're saying, well, we know where Jesus came from, even though the Scriptures had declared that he would be born in Bethlehem. They weren't really looking for the Messiah to be born in an animal enclosure and laid in a manger, the meek and humble coming of Messiah on that first Christmas in Bethlehem. They thought that Christ, you know, the Messiah, would come in a very spectacular way. And that's one of the things that the, the you know, religious leaders and, and those who studied the, the Old Testament, um, that uh, they couldn't reconcile. There's verses talking about a suffering Messiah. There's verses talking about a conquering Messiah. And again, it was the religious leaders that thought, if we keep the Sabbath perfectly, then the conquering Messiah is going to come. They actually thought that perhaps two Messiahs would come. They were not thinking that there's going to be two comings of Messiah. And we know as we look back 2,000 years that Jesus first came in, in a humble way, born in a manger, but when he comes again in his second coming, that he's going to come in a very spectacular way. He's going to come in great power and great glory where every eye will see him. So they had troubles kind of reconciling all of this. And some were saying, well, when Messiah comes, he's going to come in a spectacular way. But then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, verse 28, saying, you both know me and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. So here Jesus, teaching in the temple, he cries out, you think that you know where I am from, that I came from Nazareth, but you don't understand that I really came from heaven. And so the religious leaders are wanting to lay hands on him. And when I say that, and as we read, that they're wanting to lay hands on him, it's not to pray for him, not to bless him. They're wanting to grab him and arrest him and put him to death. And verse 31, And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, he will do more signs than these which this man has done. So the people, some were looking at Jesus, that uh, could this be the Messiah? The signs and miracles that he was doing caused them to say he must be Messiah after all. You know, what miracles do you expect the Messiah to do that this man hasn't done? So some in the crowd are beginning to turn to Jesus as it says many here in verse 31 are believing in him. And what do you think that the religious leaders are, are thinking and what are they going to do? Well, we read in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. And then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. So the Pharisees, seeing the crowds turning to Jesus, they're thinking, we've got to do something. We've, we've got to grab him. We, we've got to, to siege him. So they send some of the temple soldiers to arrest him. And we're going to see that they will come back without him because his hour has not yet been given or has come for him to be delivered to them. The Pharisees, of course, uh, the religious guardians of the nation, they know that they're beginning to lose their authority with the people to this one who has come into to Jerusalem, and, and he's upset 
the feast. He overturned the money changers' tables. He drove out the sacrifice. He challenges us. He rebukes us before the people. He, he does this miracle on the Sabbath day. We've got to arrest him. And while they are instructing the soldiers and guards to arrest Jesus, Jesus continues to teach. You will seek me, and where I'm going, you cannot come. And of course, he's talking about his death and burial and resurrection and ascension back to, into heaven. So as Jesus is talking, uh, there's somewhat a, a debate. Is he talking just to the religious leaders? Um, perhaps. But is he talking to the nation as a whole? That you only have a short time to make up your mind about me? Because in about six months, they're going to be crying out, crucify him. But I'm going to go to heaven where those who reject him will not be with him. In verse 35, then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we should not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? What's, what's he talking about? You'll seek me and not find me. Is he going to take a trip? Is he going to go on a mission? Is he going to go among the dispersion of the Greeks and minister to them? Is he going to hide from us? And in verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast. Now remember the Feast of Tabernacles, what that feast was about, how God had kept them in the wilderness, that manna came from heaven to feed them. There was the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud to lead them. There was water that came from the rock. And every day in the feast, the priests, what they would do is they would make this processional down to the Pool of Siloam. So what you had is you had the temple mount area where the people gathered, where all the people were. And then as you go down south, and you can see it as you stand on the Mount of Olives, as you head south at the very low end of Jerusalem, they've excavated it just recently. There is the pools of Siloam, which means scent. And what the priests would do is about for, you know, walk for about a quarter mile from the Temple Mount area where all the people were. They would carry these, these clay jars and they would walk down to the Pool of Siloam, sent, and we'd, they would fill up the, the clay jars with water. And then they would come back and they would, um, you know, pour out that water on the pavement signifying how God, you know, provided for them that water. And that's what they would do for seven days. But then on the last day of the feast, the priests would make that processional. They would go down to the Pool of Siloam, but they would come back, but their pots would be empty. And the reason that they did that, because it signified that the supernatural flow of water from the rock would stop when they entered into the Promised Land. Hey, you've crossed the Jordan River, you're in the Promised Land, no more manna fell, no more water from the rock, no more pillar of fire. So there'd be no water in the jars on that last day as the previous seven days. And not only was it a commemoration of, of that event, but also on a particularly the last day. It was an anticipation of what was to come, and that was Messiah. And what they would do is they would quote from Isaiah 44, that I will pour out water on him who is thirsty and 
floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Speaking of Messiah and restored Israel. So they went to the pool. The one who is sent came back with empty pots, commemorating what had happened historically, but also showing in anticipation, symbolically, oh, send Messiah, he who is going to pour out water upon those who are thirsty. And as the priest would say this, there would be this pause. There would be this silent prayer and praying, Messiah, come. And you can catch the scene. There are all these people, thousands of people up there on the Temple Mount area in the large courtyards that were built up there. And, and they're praying and they're singing and they're saying this psalm that I will pour out water on him who is thirsty. And there's this moment of silence. And when that happened, all of a sudden... Verse 37, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This morning, are you debating about him? Jesus stands as they're having this, this feast, this festival. Oh, we're waiting for Messiah. And he says, if any of you thirst, come to me. And in chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. And if you come and eat and drink of me, that is believe in me, that you'll never hunger and thirst again, and you'll have everlasting life. Is there anybody here in this place this morning that you wonder, what is Jesus all about? You've never surrendered your life to Jesus, that he is the bread of life, that he is the one who came and died for you, for your salvation. No one else died for you. No one else rose from the grave. No one else conquered sin and death. The one who lived a perfect life because of his love for you died for you. And he proved his love for you by going to the cross, and he proved who he was by rising from the grave. He's alive, perhaps knocking on the door of your heart. Will you open up your heart to him this morning? We're going to give you opportunity to do that. But Christian, listen. If you're thirsty, if you're hungry in your heart and in your soul, as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, Jesus is the one to go to. And as you go to him, you'll find true satisfaction and fulfillment. And you'll find true great joy that will be overflowing from you as you just surrender completely to him. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for, Lord, your love for us. We thank you for your provision for us. That you are the bread of life. And as Jesus said, that I lay down my life and I'm going to go away. And I'm going to go back to the Father, which he has done. And so, Father, we thank you that Jesus went to the cross for our sins, every single one of us. And I pray if there's anyone here that has debated about Jesus or wondered what he truly is about, if you're here this morning, whether in this sanctuary or out in a coffee shop, and you've never surrendered your life, your heart to Jesus Christ, believing in him, he says, come. That's the invitation, come to me, drink of me, eat of me, the bread of life, the one who gives living water. The water of the world, listen, 
will not save you. You'll only be thirsty. You need the true bread from heaven, the living water. And it comes for eternal life as you realize that you are a sinner. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It comes as you surrender to Jesus, turn to Him for eternal life, believing in Him, that He is the Christ, the Son of God who died for you personally. And then from the cross He cry out, it is finished. I have done the work for forgiveness and salvation. I provide it for you. He was put into a grave and He rose again. He's alive. We believe in a risen Savior, one who is alive. Perhaps he's knocking on the door of your heart. Will you open up your heart to him? Because it isn't about being religious outwardly. It's about devotion inwardly in your heart, being circumcised in your heart. Believing in him. And you can pray, Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner in need of you, the Savior of the world. I believe you died on Calvary's cross for my sins, forgive me. And that you rose again and that you are alive. And Lord, I now ask that you would sit on the throne of my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. Oh, I believe that, that you're alive and that you are Lord, that you are God. And thank you for dying for me. And help me to live for you. I come to you now to the living waters. Thank you for hearing my prayer. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, and we give opportunity every service as we do our services on Sunday for you to come to Christ. And I want you, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, just put your hand up and put it back down. It doesn't save you raising your hand, but you're saying I'm making a commitment to Christ this morning. And I want to be able to pray for you and minister to you. If you're out in a coffee shop, we have those who will be able to minister to you and just raise your hand, put it back down. Anybody at this service at this time today? Anybody at all? We're not going to prolong it. Okay. For those of us in Christ, Jesus said, come to me. That's what we've seen over and over again over these last chapters, that he is the living waters, that he's the bread of life, that we come to him. To believe in Him. To be devoted to Him. And truly be satisfied and fulfilled in our lives. The things of this world won't do that. So I pray that right now that you would say, Lord, I come to you for there to be a cleansing in my heart and teaching to touch my heart. And Lord, for the living waters that you have for me. Fill me with your love. Fill me with your spirit right now. Lord, strengthen me. Comfort me. Lord, you are everything that I need. Father, I thank you that we can come as your children and ask, knowing that you're a good father that will provide for us and give to us the Holy Spirit for those who ask. So, Father, thank you. We thank you for this morning. I pray that you bless everyone here as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you please stand?
Pastor John is up front here to pray with you if you need any prayer at all.